With sitcoms like Bonanza, Gomer Pyle USMC, Batman, and Get Smart, America was ever on the lookout for the next leading man. And in 1965, when Hogan's Heroes hit the CBS airwaves, the show, along with its leading man, Bob Crane, they found one. But on June 29, 1978, when actor Bob Crane was found bludgeoned to death with an electrical cord around his neck, the world would be exposed to his double life of America's Dad Next Door and Sex Addict. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows because... We all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. When someone dies, it never fails that stories come out of the woodwork. Stories to exemplify the deceased attributes, and stories that they would have rather taken to their grave. It's even worse with celebrities. Nothing is sacred. Nothing is private. One piece of salacious gossip can completely turn a person into a whole new persona. Gossip sells. No story seems more true than the headlines that surround the unsolved murder of actor Bob Crane. So much so that the bulk of his work is overshadowed by the dark secrets he tried so hard to fight. Warning. This episode dips into addiction, and there is some graphic material in discussing the murder. So that is your content warning. And if you're comfortable with that, let us proceed. Let's go back to the life of Bob Crane before his celebrity status. Back when he believed that all he wanted in life was to be famous to be an actor, to entertain. All that started pretty early in his life, and it found its release in drums. He loved playing drums, and jazz was his genre of choice. From his school days, he was remembered for being a class clown and an immense music lover. In 1942, at the age of 14, Bob began drumming for the Connecticut Symphony Orchestra for about a year. He was later dismissed for not being quote-unquote serious enough. After graduating from Stamford High School in 1946, he enlisted in 1948 for two years in the Connecticut Army National Guard, reaching the rank of corporal and was honorably discharged in 1950. In 1949, he would marry his high school sweetheart, Anne Terzian. They would have three children, Robert David, Deborah, and Karen. In 1950, Crane got a break and began his new career in radio broadcasting at WLEA in Hornell, New York. Apparently, he was a natural behind the mic and his career flourished. His friend Bob Levine would write, quote, He was truly a great radio personality, and here's why. He really knew how to communicate one-to-one with his listeners. And he was warm and funny and talked directly to you. Very few announcers understand that concept. End quote. In 1956, he moved his family to the other side of the country to work at a station with a sleepy morning show. His job? Wake the people up. He was allowed a lot of creative leeway and it paid off. Levine writes quote, Crane was also an excellent interviewer. A regular feature on his show was celebrity interviews, and he'd get the biggest stars in Hollywood to come on his local show. Sinatra, Marilyn Monroe, Jimmy Stewart, etc. One day he interviewed Carl Reiner, who at the time was running the Dick Van Dyke show. He convinced Reiner to give him a small part in an episode. End quote. Crane became the number one morning man in Southern California at the CBS owned and operated radio station in Los Angeles. He would interview celebrities and movie stars, he'd play drums and crack jokes. He would think on the fly and always had something witty to say. He was eventually crowned King of the L.A. Airwaves. Hollywood gossip columnist Florabelle Muir wrote in 1968, quote, Bob kidded his listeners, his sponsors, his guests, and himself in a wildly formatted show that had to be heard to be believed, end quote. Carol Ford, one of the authors of Bob Crane, the Definitive Biography, writes, quote, 
His work in radio was unprecedented, and how devoted he was to broadcasting and how he changed radio through his innovative style and sampling techniques. Those he worked with in radio described him as a radio genius, end quote. It's not uncommon for those who gravitate toward the entertainment industry to dabble in several of the mediums offered. He said he was bitten by the acting bug in 1958 when he and his wife saw the movie Tunnel of Love, which featured Doris Day, Richard Widmark, and Gig Young. Quote, My wife told me afterward that Gig Young acted a lot like me. Then she wondered why I hadn't gone into acting. So I decided to give it a try. A few weeks later, I did Tunnel of Love in a Little Theater. It really wasn't acting. It was more like Bob Crane's impression of Gig Young. But it was a start. End quote. Hobnobbing with all these stars and being owned by CBS, it's no surprise that his talents could no longer be contained inside the small radio soundstage. He had a bit part in the film Return to Peyton Place in 1961, and this led to a part in The Twilight Zone and then others. Then, in 1962, that opportunity gifted by Carl Reiner on the very popular Dick Van Dyke show came to pass. And this is where it said Donna Reed saw his performance and encouraged him to join her show in 1963. His first few appearances turned into the reoccurring role of Dr. Dave Kelsey. He appeared for 62 episodes until Crane's character was dropped after two seasons because executives decided the flirtatious Kelsey was, quote-unquote, too suggestive. But fear not, he was not out of work for long. Actually, he was offered three different parts. According to the Associate Press in an article from 1965, quote, he turned down three roles before picking Stalag 13. One of those was, like his radio show, a talk show, a late-night role akin to Tonight with Jack Parr, end quote. This was the one that Johnny Carson would pick up and run with for the rest of his life. Then they also offered him, quote, two plum sitcom leads in Please Don't Eat the Daisies and My Living Doll. Please Don't Eat the Daisies was an adaptation of a hit 1960s film, which itself was based on a best-selling book, about a couple living in an old house raising four rowdy boys with the help of a housekeeper. There was a dog, too. My Living Doll offered far more fantastic fare. It was about a man and his beautiful android, Julie Newmar, 60s comedy along the lines of Bewitched and My Favorite Martian. I had to talk for a long time to explain to the producer that I wasn't right for Please Don't Eat the Daisies. Then I also had to explain why I didn't want to do My Living Doll, end quote. He'd also say, quote, I've noticed successful TV hosts such as Steve Allen, Jack Parr, Johnny Carson, and Arthur Godfrey all remained TV hosts. The public wouldn't accept them as anything else. Suppose they had wanted to become actors. They couldn't. Have you ever seen Carson act? I'll bet no one ever gives him the chance. End quote. When Crane's agent brought him the concept of Hogan's Heroes, his immediate reaction was, quote, A comedy about World War II? Are you nuts? End quote. But he gave it a chance after they explained it, and he really liked the idea. He screen-tested with Werner Kemplerer, who, if you're familiar with the show, would be cast as Colonel Klink, in December of 1964. They had an instant chemistry. Entertainment Magazine describes it as, quote, Heroes featured a motley crew of inmates in a German prisoner of war camp outfoxing the remarkably inept Third Reich for six seasons. Along the way, it made Crane, who played the womanizing Colonel Robert Hogan, a household name, end quote. Side note, author Carol Ford says, quote, before Bob signed, he wanted to be sure that the series would not offend veterans and former POWs. Bob's older brother and other relatives had served during World War II, and he was sensitive to the feelings of the veterans. So he insisted that a trailer be made and sent to groups of veterans and former POWs in the Midwest to get their feedback. As it turned out, they loved the show, claiming they would have never survived the war without humor. Bob was sold, and the rest was history. He'd say in an interview why he chose this role, quote, Hogan of Hogan's Heroes will be a colorful character. He may even get a chance to chase a few girls, too. Yes, believe it or not, we'll smuggle a few into our POW camp before too long, end quote. Wow, that would end up playing out 
probably not how he expected. Hello everyone, it's time for a Bag of Bones sponsor break, and this one highlights Lumi Deodorant. But today, we're not talking about their amazing deodorant products. If you didn't know already, Lumi also creates body wash. Makes sense, right? And you'll be happy to know that the same care that goes into the deodorant carries over to the body wash line as well. Lumi's acidified body wash is clinically proven to work three times better than ordinary soap. Lumi has a low pH, making it perfect for sensitive skin, and it eliminates odor in all the places, promoting healthier, softer skin. If you haven't already tried the body wash, consider using the Bag of Bones link in the show notes to give it a try. It has a money-back guarantee and free shipping with any order of $25 or more. Plus, you help support an awesome podcast. Hint, hint. If you know you stink or you take showers regularly, this product is for you. Give it a try today. Click the link in the show notes. While Bob Crane eagerly signed on to star in Hogan's, he was still tethered to the KNX radio station. So, for the first year of production, Crane would say his schedule was pretty ragged. He'd spend the mornings at the station, then zip over to the various studio lots for filming. He'd say his days usually started at 4 a.m. and would end around midnight. But he had a family to look after and wanted to cover his bases if the sitcom didn't wash. The show was considered an instant success. It aired for the first time September 17, 1965. The people who watched it loved it. The people who didn't watch it hated it. Bob Crane would say, quote, It's not a concentration camp. It's a POW camp. We're not making light of atrocities. We're just trying to show how darn clever the Americans were. It was easy to see which letter writers hadn't watched the program. No one could see Hogan's heroes and think that we were making fun of the war. Our comedy is done with characterization. It's outsmarting the boss. It's the kid with the snowball when the top hat goes by. It's getting the best of authority. End quote. Crane would be nominated for an Emmy in 1966 and again in 1967. His co-star Werner Kempler, who played Colonel Clink, would end up with two of the Golden Statues. Side note. Three of Hogan's actors, Werner Kempler, who played Colonel Clink, John Banner, who played Sergeant Schultz, and Leon Askin, who was known for his role as General Burkhalter, were all Jewish actors who actually survived the Holocaust. And then there's Robert Clary. He portrayed Corporal Lebeau. He had actually been imprisoned at a concentration camp and lost his parents at Auschwitz. He still has his concentration camp tattoo on the inside of his left forearm, A5714. Author Carol Ford would write, quote, There was no animosity among the cast, and no egos existed. The show was a great success because everyone worked hard and worked together as a team. They were friendly co-workers. Universally, cast and crew credited producer Edward H. Feldman for the show's success and the happy tenor on the set, but a lot of credit was given to Bob, too. He wasn't a prima donna. He was easygoing. You knew he was the star, but he didn't impress that on you. End quote. Side note, the drums played at the beginning of the Hogan's Heroes was played by Bob Crane. Also side note, he was known to carry his drumsticks with him everywhere, and they would be discovered in his apartment after his death. Bob Crane would remember loving everything about working on Hogan's Heroes. He loved his character, he loved the cast, and he loved his fans. It was around this time it's believed that Crane started dabbling in what would later turn into a scandalous addiction. He would openly have an affair with co-star Cynthia Lynn, who played Helga, a buxom bleach-blonde secretary with 1960s hairstyles in 1940s Germany, in season one of the show. When she left and was replaced by Sigrid Valdis, who played Hilda, Crane had an affair with her as well. Her real name was Patricia Olson, and she would end up being Bob's second wife. Bob divorced his wife Anne after 20 years of marriage and married Patty the same year, 1970, on the set of Hogan's Heroes. The next year, Patty would give birth to a son, Robert Scott, and the couple would later adopt a daughter, 
Adam Marie. Patty already had a daughter, Melissa. Robert Crane, Bob Crane's firstborn, as an adult would write, quote, The impact on my life of my folks' separation was truly the shattering of a dream. They had always seemed so safe, so certain. Perhaps they had thought so themselves, complacent that they would weather any storm. The family was conservative by nature, politically, and in terms of family values. There were no drugs, there was no alcohol, there was no pill-popping, craziness, schizophrenia, suicide attempts, physical or mental abuse, end quote. Okay, let me interject something here because it's going to come up again later, and as the story unfolds, things will make a bit more sense and maybe not be quite as shocking. Bob Crane documented everything. He was fascinated with audio and visual technology that was probably inspired by his time at the radio station. He learned to fiddle with techniques and create new sounds and recording shortcuts that helped him evolve in this industry. As time went, the technology just kept getting better and he stayed on track with it as well. So he would write notes constantly in his date books jot down thoughts on random pieces of paper, took pictures of everything, and when home video came out, he jumped all over that as well. So this perfectly innocent hobby soon took on a bit of a darker turn. It's rumored with his television celebrity he began to need to see his image on film. He began having affairs as well, uh, and documented it. Plus, women would literally throw themselves at him and he would document it. Soon, he was the proud owner of stacks of Polaroids of consenting women in various stages of undress and would share them with whomever wanted to see. It's hard to decipher if he felt any shame or guilt with his extracurricular activities because he also believed himself to be a stellar father and a husband. And and he was, I guess. Not that he couldn't be both? Could he be all things to all people and still have this unique hobby as long as all parties were agreeable? Bob Crane had said, quote, When I was a kid, I fell in love with Spencer Tracy in Captain's Courageous. That to me was the ideal. A good man, a brave man. What I would want to be. I'm still in love with that, end quote. His co-star, Robert Clary, would eventually comment about it after his death. Quote, Who cares? That's his problem. Why waste my time saying, How dare you like ladies? That is dumb. Would not even think about it. All we thought was, Your life is your life, as long as you're doing your job properly. End quote. Cynthia Lynn, co-star, recalls, quote, He was a camera nut, okay? I loved it when he took pictures of me because he was like a kid in a candy store. Yes, he took some nude pictures of me, but it was nothing to be ashamed of. There was nothing kinky or weird about it. End quote. And then we have his daughter Karen Crane with the other side of the coin. She recalls Bob as an ideal father. Quote, My dad was an absolute typical family man at home. He was always swimming with us, playing with us. I just have wonderful memories of my dad and my years growing up. End quote. His oldest son, Robert, said, quote, We did home movies. He did a movie and I played an FBI agent. My cousins were in it. My dad was in it. The project took months to get together and it was about eight minutes long. But those were the kinds of things we did. We just had a great time, end quote. So I guess, for a time, Bob Crane could have both. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get back to the storyline. He's a great dad, a great co-star, a great man. Not in any interview or article or book did I read where Bob Crane was not spoken of with the utmost respect. During the run of Hogan's Heroes, Bob Crane was everywhere. He is guest starring in sitcoms, game shows, talk shows. He's invited to host talk shows and game shows. He is having the time of his life and soaking up his stardom. All the while, he is happy. He's upbeat. He remains humble. One of the adjectives many use to describe him, humble. Robert Clary, who played the part of Corporal LeBeau, would recall about the show, quote, It was well written, well directed, and well acted. It was a great group to work with. 
Bob never said, hey, I'm Hogan and I'm the star, end quote. One of his last television appearances, he would say, quote, I love life. I am an optimist. I'm the guy that always assumes that no matter what's in that room, there's a pony hidden underneath all that stuff. I'm the guy that says that. There must be a pony in there, end quote. And then in 1971, the new president of CBS abruptly canceled Hogan's Heroes after a six-year run. According to the IMDB website, quote, The show was still very popular in its final season on air, but CBS nevertheless canceled it. Their reasoning was that Hogan's Heroes was a World War II comedy show that made fun of Nazis and World War II POWs, while the Vietnam was raging and at the forefront of the news at the time. CBS wanted to be more current and politically correct, especially in regards to POWs. It was also caught up in the rural purge, where advertisers complained that their products were selling in rural areas and not the urban areas. They wanted shows that would sell their products in urban areas more, end quote. The rural purge, in case you were wondering, refers to the cancellation of many of the popular sitcoms at the time that had rural settings such as Andy Griffith, Petticoat Junction, Green Acres, and the Beverly Hillbillies. And yes, even Lassie got the boot. The time slots were filled with more modern shows like The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Maud, The Jeffersons, The Carol Burnett Show, and then MASH. Other big changes began around this time. Shows were using multiple cameras, and most of the laugh tracks were discontinued, replacing them with live audiences. The cancellation of Hogan's Heroes knocked the entire cast and crew for a loop. No one saw it coming. Luckily, Bob Crane was able to still rebound with several acting gigs. Love American Style, Policewoman, The Doris Day Show. He was still moving and shaking. In 1973, Bob bought the rights to the play Beginner's Luck. He dove in headfirst and decided to both star and direct the show and take it on tour to dinner theater venues. This is where stories would spin this as, poor Bob, all he could get was dinner theater jobs. I may have misinterpreted, but to me it didn't seem like he regretted that choice at all. He was an actor. He wanted to act. He still had a love for the stage, and this was an opportunity to do things his way. It's true that he wasn't making as much money, but he wasn't unhappy. He would do bit parts when they came up, but for the most part, spent his time tweaking and traveling with his play, Beginner's Luck, enjoying the draw that his fame brought to it. He would actually say in interviews that he'd been offered jobs in broadcasting and as permanent game show hosts, but he didn't want those. He wanted to act. In fact, his son Scott Crane would say that the job for Family Feud was offered to his father first, and he recommended Richard Dawson for the job. I don't know how accurate that is. Apparently, Dawson and Bob Crane had a love-hate relationship. Bob would forgive, and Richard would abuse the relationship. Dawson would stand up at Crane's wedding to Patty, but refused to show up for his funeral. According to Scott Crane, quote, Over and over again, he would help Richard Dawson, and Richard Dawson would basically spit in his face and make fun of him to his face. Richard was very jealous of him and made fun of him on the set, but Bob kept on helping Richard. Bob was friends with everyone. He was a very friendly guy, end quote. So Bob settled in with his play. In 1973, Disney came calling and offered him the part in the movie Super Dad. But at Disney Studios in Burbank, he's on the set showing photographs of women that he's been with to people on the crew. Crane's sex addiction was now no longer a secret behind the scenes, and he was reprimanded several times for his poor conduct on set including plastering his trailer walls with photos of half-naked women. But, then again, apparently everyone who was involved is embarrassed by Super Dad, so we'll just leave that alone. Then, in 1975, NBC would bring him a script. A sitcom with his own name, The Bob Crane Show. He joked on an interview saying, quote, I wanted it to be called The Dick Van Dyke Show, but that was already taken, so we went with The Bob Crane Show, end quote. The Eugene Register Guard on April 20th, 1975 announced, quote, Bob Crane has bounced back from four years in Hogan's Heroes 
with a new situation comedy cleverly titled The Bob Crane Show. The name of the show may be pedestrian, but the star is as unorthodox as anyone in show business. Crane has a highly developed sense of humor and refuses to take himself seriously. End quote. As usual, he was very excited. As usual, he documented everything. Perhaps more than made everyone comfortable. The show ran for 14 episodes, and then the network pulled the plug. Bob Crane just shakes his shoulders and returns to his play, Beginner's Luck, with a new surge of publicity. He'd say, quote, Never once do you say, gee, I'm disappointed that a series hasn't come along. You're never really disappointed. You always say, one of these days. I think hope springs eternal in an actor's life. You're always looking for the next thing that happens, the next thing that comes along, end quote. Side note, this was from an interview that aired only a week before his murder. That punched me in the gut a little bit. Disney did give Crane a second chance in 1976 with the movie Gus. He had a very minor part as a fast-talking sports announcer. This would be Bob Crane's last movie role. By this time, his acting career is definitely on the wane. His guest parts are becoming fewer and fewer. The audience in his theater show is getting smaller and smaller. In 1977, he'd play a part in The Hardy Boys, and then in his final television role would be the only quote-unquote serious part he'd ever play, and that would be on The Love Boat, which many would say that's the show where actors' careers go to die. In his personal life, Crane gave in to his addiction more and more. He was introduced to John Henry Carpenter while still working on the Hogan's set. Mutual on-again, off-again friend Richard Dawson made the introductions. By this time, he spent his downtime developing hundreds of photographs of the actresses and Playboy playmates who always seemed available. Quote, Word was out that the Hogan's set was the place to market your wares if you were young, shapely, and of the female persuasion. End quote. He didn't try to hide anything. Everyone knew what was happening, and if you stepped into his bathroom, a.k.a. the dark room, you'd see it too. He was proud of his work. And until his introduction to Carpenter, his photos were all he needed. John Carpenter worked in the retail side of audiovisual equipment and was the salesman to the stars, if you will. It's said that Crane's obsession with video actually began with John. Crane had long been taking still shots of his quote-unquote sexual conquests, but when he was introduced to video, these sexual encounters not only increased, but apparently soon both were participating in videotaping group sexual encounters. Not long after, Carpenter started arranging his business trips to coincide with Crane's dinner theater touring schedule so the two could continue videotaping their sexual encounters. Apparently, things escalated quickly. In the early stages, they would feed off each other. Carpenter would get the latest in video equipment, and Crane could get the women, and he didn't mind sharing. Linda Groundwater, one of the authors of the book Bob Crane, The Definitive Biography, would say, quote, they were mutually destructive, end quote. Side note, curiously, one of the last episodes of Hogan's Heroes was called Hogan's Double Life. Truth really is stranger than fiction, and the truth is about to explode. Hello, listeners. We are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt. And we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. On June 29th, 1978, Victoria Ann Barry, a co-star of the Scottsdale, Arizona production of Beginner's Luck, was waiting for Bob Crane to meet her for lunch. He didn't show. She went to his apartment when he didn't answer his phone. After knocking and there was no answer, she let herself inside. The door was unlocked, which was a red flag. She walked back to his bedroom and saw him laying in bed, but when she turned on the light, she was horrified at what she saw. Victoria tells the Phoenix New Times, quote, The whole wall was covered from one end to the other with blood, 
and I just sort of stood there, and I was numb. He was curled up in a fetus position on his side, and he had a cord tied around his neck, end quote. She called 911, and the police arrived soon after. According to the police reports, there were no signs of a struggle, and a post-mortem examination indicated Crane had been asleep when someone bludgeoned him in the left temple with a blunt instrument. The detectives found bloodstains on the inside of the front door and surmised that the killer fled in that direction. There were no signs of forced entry, and the sliding glass door that led to the swimming pool was unlocked. Inside the apartment, there were hundreds of dollars worth of video cameras and equipment, plus over 50 full VHS tapes of recorded material. The police described the Scottsdale apartment as, quote, a very passionate murder scene, end quote. Crane's body was found lying on its right side atop a queen-sized bed, clad only in boxer shorts and still wearing his expensive wristwatch. An electrical cord was fastened tightly around his neck and a pillow stood vertically at the top of his head. While still at the scene, the Maricopa County Medical Examiner climbed over Crane's body and shaved his head to examine the wounds instead of waiting until he was transferred to the coroner. He would discover two parallel gashes above and behind the left ear of his head that left a fan of blood across the ceiling, the wall behind the top of the bed, and the nightstand lamp. Human tissue was on the wall, the bedsheet, and the pillowcase was soaked with blood. By the time Scottsdale Detective Barry Vassell was called to the unit apartment, several cops were already there along with the dinner theater actress, Victoria Berry, who apparently spent a lot of time on the phone. Vassal was then sent to the airport to pick up Robert, Bob's son, who was already planning a visit, Crane's business manager, Lloyd Vaughn, and attorney, Bill Goldstein, and brought them to the scene. Robert believes that allowing them to go to the apartment is what compromised the investigation. He'd write, quote, Vaughn Goldstein and I walked through the apartment, examining, touching, handling items in plain view of Vassal. We added our fingerprints, footprints, and hair samples to an already contaminated, lackadaisically investigated, casually considered murder scene. End quote. Vassal, now retired from the force in Scottsdale, countered, quote, In a perfect world, you have a crime scene. Nobody's allowed in, nobody's allowed out. You only have one or two people in there but that doesn't always happen. I don't think there is any contamination of the crime scene, which is what you really worry about, end quote. Robert Crane continues, quote, My dad's body had been removed. We walked around the crime scene. It was a joke. We were touching stuff, contaminating the scene. I saw the actual bed that he was in when he was murdered. I saw blood. I think I saw brain matter on the wall. The next morning, I went to the morgue, and I saw my dad on a slab. I went in there, just looked at him. I touched his skin. I touched his cheek, and it reminded me of cool clay. I'll never forget that. And then I had to report back to my mom and sisters. They were all shrieking. And it turned out he was hit in the head twice while he was sleeping. And the police theorized with a tripod of a video camera, end quote. The night before Bob's death, after the closing of the theater show, Fans would say that Bob was in the lobby with the rest of the cast, smiling and laughing and happily signing autographs. Once the lobby cleared out, Bob had met up with John Carpenter, and the two spent most of the evening together, not parting ways until around 3 a.m. The next morning, Carpenter was on a flight back to California. It didn't take long for the media to catch wind of the story, and they were not kind. Chris Connolly of ABC News would write, quote, Bob Crane was a sex addict before the term was invented, a married man who seduced scores of women over the years and enjoyed recording the details of their X-rated encounters, end quote. The Inquirer magazine would offer, quote, Bob Crane, Kinky Hogan's hero star, was killed by Porn King, end quote. This story launches into the theory that the largest porn-distributing mob boss out in L.A. put a hit on Crane's life because he supposedly backed out of making a porn video that they were going to call Hogan's Hero. Crane had filed for divorce from his second wife, Patty. His family photos were splashed across the front page, scandalizing the scenes. Double life, secret life, sex-crazed, home porn. The headlines were ruthless. 
Even today, it's next to impossible to find anything about Bob Crane that doesn't involve a sex scandal lead. The moment, in the broadest sense of terms, colored this man's entire life and contributions to his family and his fans. Full disclosure, I have not seen any of the video footage or the stills either for that matter, so I can't say with 100% certainty what is on them, but it has been confirmed by enough people that both Crane and Carpenter were seen together in sexual situations. And there is a lot of footage and a lot of different women. Were they looking to create a new avenue in the porn industry? I don't think so. Had their addiction to sex and narcissism gotten the better of them to where they were not thinking clearly? Perhaps this. Had this new information perhaps stained the investigation? Good chance. For clarification's sake, since I know many of you now have donned your armchair sleuthing hat, the women were aware they were being filmed and photographed. Many of the snapshots were said to have been looking directly at the camera, but in case you're still concerned, on the various websites there are several photos, not not those photos, but also warning, some of them are hard to see but others show the apartment where he was staying. Video devices were not as advanced in 1978 as they are today. The camera and recording devices were massive. You can see his entire setup in his living room. There was no hiding that stuff. And again, for clarification, it has been proven by those who did watch that there was no BDSM, cruelty, or weird stuff. Robert would add, quote, I don't think of it as a dark side. My dad loved women. I think he might have been overcompensating for the lack of a solid career in his final years, and maybe that fed his ego to meet women in a nightclub and they'd go off and sleep together. But I never looked at it as dark because it was consensual. There weren't hidden cameras or anything, end quote. As you'll see, they blew through their list of suspects and honed in on one. John Henry Carpenter. At the time, as far as the public was concerned, Bob Crane was still the all-American charming leading man, not a sex-crazed porn star. There had to be someone to blame. John Henry Carpenter would wear that crown for the rest of his life. The autopsy report reads in part, Call me crazy, but I like the facts more than speculation. Quote, the body is partly clothed in white boxer shorts and there is a wristwatch on his left wrist. I will add that he was covered with a sheet and comforter up to his waist. There is abundant dry blood on the face, in the hair, and on the upper chest and right arm. There is a slightly depressed ligature mark around the neck, three-eighths of an inch in width, which traverses the upper body of the larynx. There is a three-quarter by one-quarter inch contusion on the lower lip. There is a contusion of the left upper eyelid, which is confluent with a contusion of the left temple. There is a small contusion of the medial right lower eyelid. There are two parallel, horizontally oriented, contused lacerations behind the left ear, each one and a half inches in length. Between these two contused lacerations is a one and a half inch by half inch strip of intact skin. Immediately above the posterior aspect of the upper laceration, there is a three-quarter inch length contused laceration of the scalp. All of these lacerations to the left scalp posterior to the left ear show bridging tissue in the deeper subcutaneous and muscular tissue, end quote. It goes on to say that there was also damage done to the left ear from the inside, most likely caused by the skull fragmenting. It also mentions a small laceration on his left hand, which was close to his face when he was struck. In the skeletal section, it explains that the blunt force trauma that fractured the left temporal bone, quote, radiated into the adjacent anterior occipital bone on the left and the inferior margin of the parietal bone, measuring four inches by two and a half inches and is oriented approximately horizontally, end quote. It goes on to say that the brain suffered, quote, several severe contusions of the inferior lateral left temporal cortex and left inferior lateral frontal lobe. 
they decide the time of death is between 3 and 8 a.m., quote, closer to 3, end quote. The long and short of it, it was blunt force trauma to the side of the head that killed him. He never woke up and, quite literally, never knew what hit him. The cord around his neck was pure passion-driven. He was already dead when that was wrapped around his neck. In 1978, DNA testing was not a thing, but they gathered blood samples and took photos. Detective Vassal recalls, quote, At the scene, there was blood everywhere. There were some traces of blood on the back of the exit door, the front door, and the doorknob. There was a red stain on the curtain. We found blood in Carpenter's rental car and on the passenger door. It was Crane's blood type. Nobody else who handled that car had the same blood type as Crane. It was type B blood. All of it. End quote. The police chose Carpenter as the prime suspect who had the means, opportunity, and the physical strength to have inflicted the fatal blows. But they couldn't come up with a solid motive. Or when they did, it was pretty weak. They speculated that Carpenter didn't like Bob Crane pulling away from the friendship, so he killed him. He was mad that the steady stream of women and porn would come to an end. He must be killed. The detectives and police force immediately start trying to piece together Crane's last night alive. For this, they'd need the help of John Carpenter. At the request of the police, John Henry Carpenter voluntarily returned from California to Arizona when they informed him he was their main suspect. He volunteered to take a lie detector test, did not ask to have an attorney present, and retold his story as many times as they asked. And in case you were wondering, he passed the lie detector test. His story would begin, saying that he came into Phoenix on the 25th to hang out with Bob and do a little business. He said Bob picked him up at the airport. Carpenter was staying at the Sunburst, which was only a few blocks from Crane's apartment. On the night of the 28th, Crane returned to his apartment and the two were getting ready to go out on the town. But first, according to Carpenter, Bob Crane had an argument, an all-out shouting match with his wife Patty on the phone. When Bob hung up, he was ready to hit the clubs. They found their way to a local disco called Bogart's. Here they met Carol Newell. Bob wasn't phased by her, so he dipped into his little black book and called Carolyn Barr. The three drove to Scottsdale in Crane's car. On the way to the restaurant, Carpenter grabbed the keys to his rental car from his hotel room. Carpenter and Newell then drove in his car to the safari, followed shortly by Crane, and Carolyn Barr showed up right after Crane. The group hung out and ended up breaking up around 2 a.m. Barr would go her way, promising to meet Bob for lunch the next day, and Carpenter and the Newell girl left in his car. Carpenter says he convinced Newell to come into his hotel room at the Starburst. There, Carpenter says, quote, I put some moves on her, but she didn't go for it, so I stopped and drove her home, end quote. Carpenter took Newell home about 3 a.m. When dropping her off, he requested her to stop by Crane's apartment between 8 and 11 to be sure he was awake. She said she would, but would tell the police that she didn't go. In Bob's date book that was left open on his nightstand, it says that he was scheduled to take Carpenter to the airport at 10 a.m. He had a few items folded and set near the front door that Carpenter had left behind. It was safe to assume that Crane was going to return them to their rightful owner when he picked him up. Carpenter would go on saying that he called his friend after dropping off Newell to see how he fared. Crane told him that he also struck out and that instead he was editing Saturday Night Fever because his six-year-old son Scotty wanted to watch it so he was taking out the bad parts. Carpenter then told him that he could find his own way to the airport, in which would only be a few hours away. And that was it. That would be the last time he spoke to his friend. Records show Carpenter checked out of the sunburst at 8.24 that morning and turned in the Cordoba at the Avis counter in the hotel, complaining to a clerk that the car had electrical problems. He would take a Continental Airlines to L.A., pick up his own car, and go straight to work. This is where he called Bob's apartment to let him know he arrived safely back, but ended up speaking to Police Lieutenant Ron Dean. 
The police would distinctly recall that Carpenter never asked what they were doing at Bob's apartment or if he was all right. Instead of going home, Carpenter went to his friend Richard Dawson's home where he would spend the next couple days. He didn't even tell his wife or girlfriend that he was back in town. Only a couple days later, detectives from Arizona would make their way to L.A. to bring John Henry Carpenter into custody. He was still at Dawson's house. On July 2nd, Carpenter found himself back on a plane to Arizona. The detectives read him his rights and told him that they had a few more questions for him. He says, quote, I know now this was a stupid thing to do because I knew they had me in their sights. They even told me they thought I was the bad guy. I was nervous, but I didn't have anything to hide, end quote. By the end of the second interview, it was decided they didn't have enough to arrest him, so they were forced to let him go. The only evidence they had was a three-inch blood smear on the inside passenger door of the Chrysler Cordoba rental car Carpenter had borrowed. The blood matched Crane's blood type. His blood type but since there was no DNA testing at the time, that's as far as the testing could go. They didn't have a weapon. As mentioned before, they surmised the weapon was a camera tripod since one was missing from Bob's apartment. They would also mention that Bob's photo album that he took with him everywhere, with all of the nudes he's collected over the years, was missing as well. The prosecutors allege that sometime after he dropped Newell off, Carpenter entered Crane's apartment and bludgeoned his friend with a tripod, taking it with him when he left. There was no motive, and there was sure no evidence. Twelve years later, Scottsdale detective Jim Raines uncovered a previously unseen crime scene photo that showed what could be a speck of brain tissue in Carpenter's car. The actual tissue sample was long gone, but the image was ruled admissible by a judge and Carpenter was eventually charged with Crane's murder in 1992. I did see this photo. I wouldn't be able to swear on a Bible that it was brain matter. It was so small, it could have been a booger, or phlegm for that matter. I don't know. And surprise, surprise, it wasn't enough. But there was still a trial. Team Crane brought witnesses that said Crane and Carpenter had a wild and frenzied argument the night before. Bob's oldest son took the stand and said that his dad was on the verge of some major changes, and one of those was to cut loose from Carpenter. He was losing his second marriage and finally had to come to terms with his addiction. Robert said that his father started getting counseling from a pastor, and one of the things that was suggested was to break ties with those who are involved and that may keep you hostage in your addiction. Carpenter's defense team argued that any of the dozens of angry boyfriends or husbands could have committed the murder. Jealousy is a strong defense for murder. They also brought witnesses in who claimed to see the two men had dined cordially the night before Crane's murder and did not argue. Detective Vassal doubts vengeance for infidelity as a motive. He'd say, quote, Bob was a non-confrontational guy and these women liked him. I don't think I ever interviewed one that disliked him or was mad at him, end quote. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette reported on November 1st, 1994, quote, The jury deliberated nearly two and a half days before finding Carpenter innocent of murder. Crane was often accompanied by Carpenter, lived a swinger's life while traveling the dinner theater circuit after his TV series ended in 1971. The men frequented bars, and picked up women drawn by Crane's fame. Throughout the eight-week trial, prosecutors claimed Carpenter killed Crane for the fear the actor would cut off the parade of women. Quote, Carpenter was the prime suspect in the slaying from the start. He had been with Crane the night before, and blood in his car door matched Crane's type. DNA testing on the blood smear from the door was inconclusive. There wasn't any proof, the jury foreman said. You can't prove someone guilty on speculation. Maricopa County Attorney Richard Romley said he was disappointed with the verdict, but added, As far as we are concerned, we have brought the right individual to trial. End quote. Detective Barry Vassell would say, quote, We did the best we could. We went through all the evidence. We talked to all the witnesses that we could possibly talk to, and we came up with what we came up with. 
A lot of times when you have an old case like that, it's very difficult to get a conviction. It would have been a slam dunk with the DNA testing, end quote. Side note, while John Henry Carpenter was acquitted of all charges in the murder trial of Bob Crane, just a few years prior to the trial, Carpenter was in front of a judge for a different crime. I bet you can guess what it was. I'll just read it to you from the Times. It says, quote, John Henry Carpenter, 64, pleaded no contest last month to three counts of sexual battery. He was accused of fondling his girlfriend's 10-year-old daughter and her 12-year-old friend in 1988. He was sentenced to three years probation in an unrelated child molestation case. End quote. Scott Crane would comment on his father's quote-unquote people skills. Now keep in mind, he was seven years old when his father was murdered, so he gets his insights from other people's input. But he'd say, quote, He was a bad judge of character. My mom had a better sense of reading the room than my dad. I don't think my dad was a good judge of character, which is weird because, as an interviewer on the radio, he was so good at that. He was really good at that, but mostly it was jokes. He wasn't good on a Howard Stern or Joe Rogan level trying to get in their brain at all. He was looking for the quick joke. I don't think he was actually analyzing the people he was interviewing at all. He just became friends with everyone. End quote. John Carpenter would die in 1998 a free man, but lived under the shadow of the crime, many believing he was guilty. In 2016, Phoenix TV reporter John Hook wanted to reopen the case and use modern DNA technology to analyze the samples taken from the crime scene. He'd say, quote, If we can retest the stuff, maybe we can prove that the blood that was found in Carpenter's car was Bob Crane's, end quote. It was a whole big thing. The results were delivered live on Fox 10. Hook reads from his folder, quote, The DNA found on the door of John Carpenter's rental car is not, is not, from Bob Crane. The tests actually picked up two DNA profiles. A major contributor is from a man. His identity is unknown. Second DNA profile is a partial profile, too degraded to reach any conclusions, end quote. You could see Crane's son, Robert Crane Jr., mouth wow as the results were read. I'm shocked right now, he would say. There were always two people in my mind, John Carpenter and my stepmother, for different reasons. But it was on John's car, end quote. Barry Vassell, who was the detective on the case from day one, still believes in his soul that Carpenter was the guy, no matter what the evidence says. The truth about the blood evidence that was tested came, as I mentioned before, from a small three-inch swipe. The car was a rental. The police or John Carpenter couldn't say if the blood was there when he rented it. And, after John Carpenter turned it in, it was turned back around and rented out. The police actually had to go to, I think, Mexico to retrieve it to test it. Who knows when the blood swipe actually got there. But, as of 2016, the case was officially closed even though John Hook promised to continue trying to run whatever evidence remains through the CODIS to find a match. I have not seen anything further on that, and Hook's website doesn't seem to have been updated since 2017. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a 5-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you! Thank you! 
At the funeral, around 200 family and friends gathered for Bob Crane's funeral mass at the St. Paul the Apostles Catholic Church. He was then buried in Oakwood Memorial Park in Chatsworth, California. His son, Robert David, actor friend Eric Braden, Hogan's co-star Larry Hovis and Robert Clary, and Edward Feldman, who produced Hogan's, and friend John Thompson served as pallbearers. But before you think this is the end, Bob Crane may have been buried, but he was definitely not put to rest. Paul Schrader, who would eventually direct the controversial film Autofocus about Crane's addiction in 2002, said it best, and I paraphrase, we are all feeding off the same corpse. And the feeding frenzy had only just begun. Brace yourself. Even though Bob Crane had filed for divorce, he died before the divorce became final. Somehow, I couldn't find out how, Patty Crane and her children got everything. Bob's first family got nothing. At the time of his death, he may not have had a lot coming in and was pretty darn close to broke. He did have two life insurance policies of $400,000 each. Patty sold the mansion and moved into a smaller home. They burned through the money quickly, and then the residuals from Hogan's Heroes kicked in a couple years later and supported them comfortably for the rest of her life. I'm not sure who gets the benefits of the residuals now. She also, without informing the family, had Bob Crane's body removed from his grave and placed elsewhere with a new headstone that featured Crane and, under her stage name, Sigrid Valdis, with images of their heyday. They are now buried side by side when she passed away in 2007. As I touched on before, it didn't take long for the secrets behind Bob Crane's double life leaked out into the public, and it held interest. Well, even still to this day. In 1993, Robert Graysmith is the first to cash in. His book, The Murder of Bob Crane, was very sexually explicit and portrayed Crane as the dull, nose-to-the-grindstone kind of guy until he broke into his TV role. He says, quote, I think the Bob Crane story is, here is a very good man who became a not-so-very-good man. He was a very straight arrow. He was the average American guy, which is probably why he was chosen to be Hogan. He said himself that he was 100% faithful to his first wife, and I believe him. After that, it just accelerated. I think that with the downward slide of his career, maybe it just increased. The less career, the more extracurricular activities. End quote. In 2002, the movie Autofocus was released. It was based on Graysmith's book, and even had the stamp of approval by Robert Crane, who was paid to be a consultant for the film. The director of Autofocus was Paul Schrader. Throughout his career in the entertainment business, Schrader has explored male sexuality, focusing on the tension between propriety and temptation. The allure of sin fascinates him. Crane's story was one he couldn't pass up. He'd say, quote, The attraction of Bob Crane was, Here's a guy that people think they know, but they don't. Bob Crane had a contradictory thought process, and his contradictions became the most vivid when he was with John Carpenter. Crane and Carpenter get involved in conduct that probably neither one would have done alone. End quote. The movie opens up interest in the case and the Bob Crane story once again, and splits the Crane families beyond repair. While Robert Crane is perfectly satisfied with the movie, half-brother Scott Crane is incensed. He becomes very vocal about the inaccuracies of the movie and tried to get them corrected which the movie did just enough to avoid lawsuits. Schrader says openly, quote, My intent with autofocus is not to be true or definitive. People's actual lives are not really that interesting. And with Crane, I wanted to get at something meaty. Otherwise, who cares? Who would want to watch a movie about Alan Hale? Side note, for those of you who don't know, Alan Hale is probably best known for his role as Skipper on Gilligan's Island. Scott Crane retaliates, quote, He's portraying a fiction as fact. Schrader has destroyed my father's reputation in the world. He was a happy-go-lucky guy. I'm just glad that my website represents the real Bob Crane. End quote. 
So yeah, about his website. He opened it up to the public in 2001. He wanted people to know that his dad was not gay and that he didn't participate in BDSM and that there was no penile implant. His father was well endowed on his own and apparently so is he. So, he posts his father's images and videos from his home collection on a website for all to see. For a fee, of course. You could pay for three days access or on a monthly basis. He bragged that his website got over 800,000 visits in the first month. The site has been taken down now, but it boasted Bob Crane and his willing participants in singles, doubles, triples, and even a full-on orgy happening with men in polyester pantsuits on the sidelines watching as if it were a sporting event. Scott has also various items for sale online, including a Bob Crane t-shirt depicting him having sex with a blonde and his popular quote, I don't drink and I don't smoke. Two out of three ain't bad. And, not to be left out, there was also a snow globe of Scott Crane, naked, like father like son. He also tried to produce a book called The Faces of Bob Crane, where the photos inside are a mishmash of Bob's sexual conquests, including some of his second wife, and then photos of him with his family. Of course, Robert Crane fires back, quote, These photos were private. If my father was so proud of these photos, he would have published them while he was alive. And if Patty, who inherited these tapes and pictures, was the loving, grieving widow she pretends to be, she would have put this stuff into the furnace and burned them instead of giving them to her son to sell, end quote. New York Times Magazine writes, quote, For all his attacks on Scotty, Bobby, who is a journalist, has also publicized Bob Crane's sex life. Writing in Partner, a porn magazine, he boasted that his father once had sex with five different women in one day. His conclusion? Good for you, Dad. He would go on to write his own book, Sex, Celebrity, and My Father's Unsolved Murder, in 2016. Bob Crane's youngest daughter, Karen, who ran an antique shop in California at the time, told the Arizona Republic that, quote, Scotty is using our father disgustingly to try and benefit himself, end quote. The article continues, quote, Scotty is unfazed by their condemnations and bristles at the suggestion that there is indeed something squalid about the, his desire to make money off his dead dad's dirty deeds, end quote. Even second wife Patty got in on the mudslinging. Chris Connolly from ABC News says, quote, She says she knew about Bob's obsession with sex and multiple partners, and incredibly, she didn't mind. She'd say, quote, he didn't lose his First Amendment rights when he married me. He loved having sex and filming it. She said almost matter-of-factly, he never broke any laws. Nothing he did was unconstitutional. From almost the first day on the set, he told me his hobby was photography. I didn't figure it was landscape. He brought over a double-thick briefcase, and it was filled like four rows of slides. There were thousands of slides in there of all the women in his life, end quote. Anne Crane, the first wife, has never uttered a word in all this time. In 2015, a trio of women published their book trying to save what little dignity Bob Crane might have left. They dove deep into his past and managed to bring out the light in their book, Bob Crane, The Definitive Biography. Carol Ford, Linda Groundwater, and Dee Young write in the description that their book, quote, balances the scales and sets the record straight, proving a full and complete history of Bob Crane, clarifying who he really was, and, just as importantly, who he was not, end quote. They want to make it clear that Bob Crane knew he was dealing with an addiction since the 1950s, and about a month before his death, he was said to have been receiving therapy to overcome it, but the sex was nothing devious. It was between consenting adults. All parties knew they were being filmed or photographed. They were all female, and they were all over 21. There was nothing illegal or untoward. There was just a lot, and he did it all while he was married. End quote. When reporter John Hook interviewed Robert Crane about 
the release of his book, Hook was, well, hooked. He says he couldn't stop thinking about the unsolved murder, and he spearheaded the 2016 reveal, which made a great ending to his book in 2017, Who Killed Bob Crane? From his website, he writes, quote, Hook has exhausted all remaining avenues to unearth answers in this intriguing and haunting cold case to answer once and for all who murdered Bob Crane. And finally, Carol Ford gets the final say. Quote, I think Bob was on a rebound, both in his personal life and in his career. Was he pleased with his work up to that point? Yes, for the most part. He loved Hogan's Heroes. He loved performing in theater. He loved radio. He loved his drums. He loved acting. And in all areas, he worked hard. But he also yearned to do more in his career and find that perfect role again. And that's what he was working toward at the time of his murder. The 1970s were a period of transition for him, and he was in the process of reinventing himself by breaking free of being typecast as Colonel Hogan and overcoming his personal troubles." Thank you for joining me this week for our last requested Bag of Bones episode. This week's topic was requested by Village Dave. Thanks so much for putting in your request. I had not heard this story before your request. The actor, yes. The other stuff, not so much. So, thanks. And we will continue on next week with all new episodes befitting a podcast third season. Did I mention that this is our third season? It's going to be a great one, I promise. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.